I assume, since you're watching a book to show episode, that you have all read the books. And since you've all read the books, you've experienced the feeling of expectations, of knowing what's coming, not always, but often, on HBO's Game of Thrones. For many of us, this feeling has permeated most of the, at this point, five and a half season long run. I said most, not all. But we're still seeing familiar things from the books like Arya's arc and Euron, and things not yet in the books, but that we basically expected in some form or another, like the return of Jon, or Daenerys winning over the Dothraki. But season six is flipping the book reader experience script. Instead of having expectations for the show based on what we've read, we're now starting to have expectations for the books based on what's in the show. Part of what we're here to do is undo that relationship where appropriate and strengthen it where not. We're going to have a lot of fun breaking down this episode. We're also going to unpack the notion that what's on the screen will be on the page and with as many specifics as possible. Although certainly some things on the screen will be on the page. But for example, the big moment in this episode, the confirmation that Hodor derives from the phrase hold the door is directly confirmed by George R. R. Martin. But only the meaning of the name, not the circumstances, not the setting, only the name. So there's no reason to believe A Song of Ice and Fire's version of Hodor's name origin has anything to do with an escape from the cave, with being touched by the future, Bran, in a moment of desperation. After all, the book version of the cave is immensely vast and probably doesn't have a door of any kind, right? So we should not expect that what we saw in this episode, at least in that scene, is going to be on the page. But it's sad to say that Hodor may be fated to die in a somewhat similar fashion in the books. And Summer, too, these things are far from certain. Summer's death in the show has as much to do with cutting a little budget as anything else, though it was a clever way to show that Summer has ended. Hodor, on the other hand, was an immensely popular character and became larger than life in TV fandom. After having been a favorite in the book fandom for so many years, his popularity on TV was not a surprise to book readers. And it's fitting that the episode he went out on is, so far, rated by IMDb voters as among the top three or four Game of Thrones episodes to date. That's extremely strong. Like, strong enough to hold the door against a horde of whites strong. So, it's the halfway point of season six, HBO's Game of Thrones. Uh, unfortunately, despite the epicness of this episode, we do not have our usual group of contributors. We still have Radio Westeros, but only half the team. Say hello, Lady Gwyn. Well, glad to have you back. Hello. Good to be here again. Yeah. But we're not short on things to talk about, so the two of us will be able to cover it no problem. I, I already did a three-hour show episode with Sean on Monday, and we're doing a Q&A tomorrow, so look for that. It's on Google+. We posted it on Twitter, and it should be easy to find. It's going to be at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time. So that just goes to show how much there is to say about this episode. We're also, uh, I need to mention that Radio Westeros, not just Lady Gwyn, but Yoke Boy, myself, and Ashea, We'll all be at Balticon, along with a lot of other cool people like Jeff Hartline of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire and George R.R. R. Martin himself, speaking of cool people. And there's going to be a reading. It might be something new. It might be Ariane 2 again. We'll see. And so we will be reporting on that. The group of us will be doing a panel at Balticon. So if you're in the area, come on down and check out our panel, a podcaster's panel. Jeff Hartline, Brendan Beefish will be moderating it. 
we'll be talking about podcasting and A Song of Ice and Fire in general. So, and if that recording goes well, we'll be posting it as well. So, we'll see how that goes. Maybe we'll be putting a bonus episode up. Never have we had an outpouring like after this episode on Sunday. The door is by far the most response generating, <laughs> email generating, Twitter tweeting generating episode we've ever seen. Never had so many emails, never had so many comments as we've had. So that comes with a caveat. We've tried to weave in as many questions and take as many questions as we could. And like I said, doing a show only Q&A tomorrow where more of those questions are going to be answered and raised. But I apologize if your question did not make it into either show um, because there's just so many of them. We just simply don't have time to address them all, to get them all in the show. <laughs> it's just overwhelming. But it's also awesome because it shows how much you all care about this. And I always like to see the fandom come alive as it always does during Game of Thrones TV season. Now, speaking again to the name, Hold the Door, a few people did guess correctly that that was the origin of the name well back in advance. Multiple people. The oldest we saw was 2008. And it looks like I have a gap in my notes. I forgot to look up who that was, so apologize to that person. Uh, maybe I'll look that up for the Q&A. But I suspect there may be people who have guessed it even farther back. After all, this series has been highly, highly scrutinized since it, it has existed, and it's existed since 1996. So not to take credit away from anyone who figured it out on their own, just because you figured it out in 2008 on your own, and someone else may have figured it out before you, doesn't mean you stole it from them. You can still arrive to that conclusion independently, and it's very perceptive regardless. So... Pat on the back to anyone who figured that out in advance. And before we get started, in earnest, a couple quick things. A shout out to our patron Kingsguard, Sir Andrew the Prophet. And as well as a shout out to the island of Bermuda in the Caribbean, who we've gotten a lo lovely, very generous donation from. Not, not from the entire island, because if the whole island gave us a donation, I might be retired right now. But thanks in, in general to the island of Bermuda. Very, very generous donation there. So... Let us get started. As I said, there's so much to talk about. We will probably go over two hours today, and that's just fine. We don't want to do that typically, but on rare occasions like this, it does seem appropriate because there is so much to talk about. So, Lady Gwen, let's talk themes. Let's talk about some overarching themes as we usually do to start the episode, and I'll ask you, in general, how you felt about the episode. In general, I, I liked the episode. It was a lot of emotion. I was in tears in... Um, Probably every location, except for Marine. <laughs> Very different kinds of tears, you know, tears of uh, all the different kinds of feels you can possibly have. But um, yeah, I thought it was a very emotional episode. Yeah, it's, we, we heard a lot of that. We've heard a lot of people talking about how emotional it was. It certainly was for us as well. And there's so many. Back in the day, I'm sure a lot of you guys remember, there were reaction videos to the Red Wedding or the Purple Wedding and some other things. Well. There are even reaction videos to this. Now, it's not it's unlike the Red Wedding. There weren't book readers knowing it was coming, preparing to record their friends. No one knew this was coming. But the idea of recording people's reactions to Game of Thrones is out there now. And there's just, I've seen a few scenes of people in bars or in groups, just, you know, people hanging their head, shaking their head, just crying to like guys trying to conceal the fact that they're crying, women openly weeping, etc. Just... Strong emotional reaction. So good job, TV show. You guys really got us with that one. When you can evoke emotions like that, it doesn't matter how critical you can be of the scene before or after. If they can get that kind of reaction out of people, they succeeded. That episode, the episode is 9.8 on IMDb. 
And, you know, that's a win, no doubt. So, theme-wise, having to do terrible things to save yourself is kind of a theme here. Or your family, or your culture, or your race. The Children of the Forest did a terrible thing to save their culture, or their race. Bran had to do a terrible thing to save himself. Etc. So, and, and maybe someone like Jorah is going to have to do something terrible to save themselves. And Arya is being asked to do something terrible or else. So it would kind of be to save herself. We'll see how she reacts to that. There's also a lot of scenes where our emotions are kind of pulled in multiple directions at once. We're, we're experiencing multiple, almost conflicting emotions. Hodor scene, obviously. There's all sorts of emotions in that scene. It's, it's sad. It's epic. It's, you know, got, it's anxious. It's got us on the edge of our seats. But also, for example, the play. It was hilarious, that play. But also, Arya was just struggling, and it was horrible for her. And so we felt sorry for Arya while we're laughing at these hilarious lines. So another good job there of, of splitting our emotions into two things that don't really work together, yet still, they happen together. So let's go, as we often do, we will start at the wall. That's what we've done just about, I think, every episode this season, because every episode has started at the wall. So there you go. Sansa and Littlefinger with Brienne. Lady Gwen, take us away on this scene. Well, I really like this scene. Um, yeah, I have a soft spot for Sansa and Littlefinger. So this scene, to me, was Sansa showing her strength. Uh, Littlefinger's made a horrible mistake. as She confronts him and really seems to completely reject him. Uh, but she does allow him to leave, so perhaps, you know, leaving a door open. A uh, door! Okay, yeah, I see what you An did An open there. door, not a... <laughs> maybe she was holding it open. <laughs> um, but I I did find that there was um, maybe a little bit of pathos here with Littlefinger. We talked about finding pathos in the character in our Littlefinger episode, or two-part episode that we did recently. Um, he made a rare mistake... And I felt he was genuinely sorry. I thought it was really supremely acted by Aidan Gillen. Um, he seemed possibly even submissive to Sansa. Yeah, you can't expect that he wanted her to be tortured. I can't think that that doesn't really... F see. I, it's hard to see how that would fit his plans, you know? Yeah, no, it felt genuine to me. So um, I don't think that Book Littlefinger is going to make this sort of a mistake. Uh, I think the only mistake Book Littlefinger is going to be making is underestimating Sansa, who I expect will be instrumental in his downfall, um, the pupil surpassing the teacher. And, you know, I think we're kind of being shown that here where he's being a little submissive to her. So and the outcome is going to be kind of similar, even if the way to get there is pretty different. Yeah. And by the way, the, you basically frame it as the teacher being surpassed by the student. And that is sort of the theme of this episode as well we have Bran moving on from his teacher it wasn't surpassing his teacher but he had to move on kind of unexpectedly same thing for Arya soon maybe not yet but it's being foreshadowed that that's coming and here we go again Brienne not Brienne rather but Sansa and Littlefinger so this is a theme for the Stark kids in general well I guess Rickon's being left out of that and even Jon is sort of starting over in a sense he's not Lord Commander right now so that's pretty neat. Yeah, and I definitely agree with you, Lady Gwen, that Book Littlefinger won't make this mistake. And it wouldn't be plausible for Book Littlefinger to make this mistake at this point because Ramsay is too well known at this point in, in The Dance of Dragons. It was plausible to me, maybe a stretch, that Littlefinger didn't know about Ramsay in the show. In the books, it wouldn't be plausible because Ramsay's 
well known what he does now. Manderly talks about it. It's just well known in the North. It would just wouldn't be plausible for Littlefinger for that to go unnoticed in the book. So I definitely agree that that will come out differently. So there's several different groupings of scenes at the wall here that, that all relate to each other, obviously. We have John and Santa and Davos with Ed, Tormund, and Melisandre present, but Ed, Tormund, and Melisandre don't say anything. It's really John and Sansa and Davos having the discussions. Davos brings up going to the Manderleys. Get excited. That could happen. That's, of course, the North Remembers chapter in A Dance with Dragons is the most popular chapter according to Tower of the Hand voters. Towerofthehand.com, by the way, great website for Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones resources. And their chapter voting has a lot of people have voted on every chapter that's ever been written. And that is the number one chapter. So it makes sense that the showrunners, if even remotely aware of that, which they might not be, but if they are, of course, it would make sense to bring it in. Even if they're not, they, when they read that chapter, I'm sure they recognized how epic it was. They're, they're fans of the series. They probably loved that chapter. So I'm sure they wanted to get it in there. So hopefully that's there. Brienne going to the Riverlands is being talked about openly now. And that's something we kind of predicted during the season. It seemed there were some trailer scenes that sort of gave that away in advance. So we, we saw this coming. And that's a great thing to look forward to. Hopefully we'll see the blackfish and things like that. It does seem likely. But perhaps more immediately relevant, given something that's happening, we're talking about things that we don't know about yet. But immediately we have Sansa lying to John about how she found out about Riverrun. That's very interesting. Is it uh, a sense... Do we get a sense that Littlefinger's words had an impact on her? That he sowed some doubt? Or is it just Sansa's proximity to Littlefinger for so long, making her suspicious of anyone? It's kind of hard to say. Maybe she just doesn't want to involve the Vale army. And this is so this, if she brings up that those soldiers are there, she wouldn't be able to talk anyone out of bringing them up. So I don't know. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Well, I have some thoughts on this. I, I will say that um, I, I did talk to the old boy, and he, he wondered if Sansa didn't want to admit that she turned down an army, you know, in that council, because they're talking about how kind of desperate they are for supporters, and she knows about this army yeah. encamped ready to help, and she <laughs> basically sent them away. So it could, it could be as simple as yeah. that. But uh, on the other hand, it could be showing that she's learned from Littlefinger. Um they could be setting up a conflict with John or the possibility at least that someone is trying to create one like Littlefinger or Eddie who could be other people as well. Littlefinger makes that half brother comment. And then uh, in the council scene, I thought it was interesting. Someone pointed out that John doesn't have the Stark name. I think it was Davos and Sansa was very quick to reply, but I'm a Stark. And then John kind of yeah. gave her a look and she said, oh, but John is obviously Ned's, you know, my father's son. Well, I wondered if there was some meaning to that, you know, yeah. she was, she's mm. sort of <laughs> thinking she wants to promote herself as the Stark. I don't know, you know, where that's going to go. In, in the books, John does protest that Winterfell belongs to Sansa by right, at least in his opinion it does. So I'm not sure this conflict is going to go anywhere on his part. Yeah. It's interesting because, yeah, does it truly, in the books, it's a little murkier. Does it truly belong to her? Well, we know that it would actually go to Bran and then Rickon, according to the normal rights of succession. What does that mean? <laughs> rights <laughs> of succession. <laughs> what, what, what's that mean? What's the, the rights of ascension? What's that mean? But but does it, what, does it truly belong to her? What I'm referring to is, uh, and hats up to watching her, Anthony Gonzalez, did Rob invalidate her rights in the books? 
He didn't want to name her heir because she was married to Tyrion, and he just did not, under any circumstances, wanting Winterfell to pass to the Lannisters. So, A, did he actually go through with pushing her out of the line of succession, or B, does it even matter? Is Rob's will ever going to come up? Is anyone of importance ever going to raise that issue? That's Those are open questions that we can't really answer. Really good to think about, though. The other, another really interesting thing that's going on relating to John being Ned's son, et cetera, and the talk of that is we, we book readers are all pretty much sold on R plus L equals J. If not sold completely, we recognize it as, you know, a very likely possibility. There's a few people out there that, that are not so certain, but, you know, the majority of people believe that. I, I certainly believe that. And they're really bringing a, bringing that up to the fore with Sansa making the wolf mantle for John that looked like Ned's and Ned and John wearing his hair like Ned. So I think that they're setting up, they're bringing back this whole Ned, Ned's son thing to surprise people and say, no, he's not Ned's son. He's Rhaegar's son. So I think that's where this is headed. They're reminding us of that so they can flip it. And that's pretty clever. I like, they're doing it all at once. Like in, in a lot of ways, I like how the show is handling this, hidden birth mystery in a you know i like i also i really love how that's done in the books as well but having it all kind of come up near at the same time it makes sense in a sort of succinct efficiency kind of way it's a good way to do it on tv in other words we also get lord commander ed all right <laughs> we're all happy about that right we, we talked about that we got hyped about yeah. that i know yoke boy was excited for that speaking of yoke boy reason he's not in this episode is traveling to the states he's gonna like i said he's gonna be at balticon Made the trip over the pond from England, and that's exciting. We're all going to meet in person for the first time. <laughs> Another positive of this episode is, especially for those suffering from Ramsey fatigue, is that he wasn't in this episode. They're holding on to him. There's not a lot for him to do in the meantime. He's going to you know, do his stuff at the end of the season i suppose we haven't seen him deal with rick on just yet and i'm not eager for that i'm sure you're not either huh lady Gwen? <laughs> uh no not really I, I was happy that he you know we didn't have any ramsey this episode but. yeah yeah who's chomping at the bit to be like yeah what's ramsey gonna do to rick on i can't wait to see <laughs> yeah it's just better let's just Let's just have that happen off screen. We already got we got enough of Theon's torture, and you know we, we used all that up. Let's 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 move on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, real quick, since we're leaving the North, there's less to talk about in the North than usual. Well, we have much to talk about North of the Wall, but at the Wall, less less than usual to talk about. This is a big setup. John going south. Clearly, John indicates. By the way, important point. He indicates that he's coming back. He tells Ed, "Don't you know? Don't let the Wall go down while I'm gone." which could be foreshadowing, like real sneaky. Maybe the wall will go down while he's gone. <laughs> that would be something else. We'll talk about a, a very strong theory towards that later in the episode relating to what happened with Bran and Night King. First, a shout out to our Northern Champions as we move away from the North. Patreon supporters who have designated themselves Champions of the North, such as Jay Wilson, Winter's King, Stephen Hill, Bastard of the Crag, Sir Stephen, the Hammer of the North, Small Paul of House Buckley, the Scourge of Skagos, Winter's King, Nico the Unknown of House Mormont, Bear Life, Brandon Redbeard of House Brewer, Sworn Alesmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithamanthers Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz, and also Lady Air Airdross, Mother of Wolves. Thanks, folks, for your support on patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. Onward! So much to talk about. 
Let us go to Bravos. Let's go to Bravos. We'll stick with the Starks for now. Arya and the Waif. We get a little bit of a change in the in in the history of Bravos as it pertains to book to show canon. But first of all, we're brought up. Waif brings up something very important that relates to this whole faceless man origin thing, which is that the faceless man originate amongst slaves and commoners and people who are already sort of born into this whole no one state as a matter of speaking in a manner of speaking rather whereas the wave confronts her saying calls her lady stark saying you'll never be one of us and and as jaken says she has a point and she and we all know as both readers and watchers that she's probably right the wave probably is right Arya is not giving up her stark as we saw her hide needle we know from her book point of views that she's learning how to skin change while at the house of black and white and doing all these other things and keeping her secrets hard to, in her heart etc but it's still very interesting the way they're playing it out Arya and jaken in the hall of faces again uh this is where they actually have this discussion about the differences and how faceless men the faceless men founded bravos and shokan and apparently whereas in the books we're just told that it was slaves so you know it could be the same. It's just that we have less information in the books. Maybe it was the Faceless Men who founded Bravos, but there it's just told to us in the history books as escaped slaves, which would be an accurate description, just, you know, a less descriptive term that's still accurate. There's also this knowing your target issue, which is we're not sure if the Faceless Men care about that in the show. And, and, and watching her, Nathan Ledbetter pointed this out, that of course it's important in the, in the books that, they, that a Faceless Man does not target someone that they know. They're not allowed to go after people that they know personally. So the show hasn't touched on that much or at all. So I don't think they're going to bother with that. But if they do, well then she can't go after Cersei. And maybe we're being set up for that because she's being told to target fake Cersei, which is an interesting parallel. Lady Gwynn, what did you think of the, the play? I thought the play was awesome. What about you? Yeah, I thought it was it was very well done. Uh, it, was, it was hilarious. <laughs> there, was, there was some good moments. There, there were, you know, the emotional moments of watching Arya um, observe when her father came on stage. Um, and by the way, one of our um, listeners pointed out that she was wearing a blue flower in her hair. So whether that was yeah, nice. purposeful attention to detail. Very nice. Cool. I did not see that. Did not see that at all. That's... I had to go back and watch it, but Mary Harrison is very... Uh... Oh, Mary Harrison. Yes. Good job, Mary, yes. Mary Daisy. Yes. <laughs> yes. So... Um, That's a really good I catch. Did, yeah. It was a good catch, so... And, and of course, because Arya is supposed to most be like Lyanna out of all, he's, she's the one that reminds Ned of Arya with her willfulness and her, you know, mm -hmm. desire to learn how to fight and all that stuff and be good at it, too. <laughs> yeah. And she looks like her, too. That's the other thing. That's, uh, mm -hmm. as we're told in the books. The actresses in the show don't really look that similar, but in the books, they, they're supposed to look a lot alike. Now, this, and there's a little underlying coolness in this scene. Not only is this play, was this play really well done and funny and heartbreaking at the same time. But there were, there was some meta in this scene. There were, uh, the, that one actor after the scene backstage says, there are no small parts. 
Well, that's a meta comment because these are all fairly known actors in England. They're, they're maybe not as well known to us American viewers. I didn't recognize any of them, but we had some people write in, point out to us that there's Richard E. Grant played Isambaro. He's been in the shows with Nail and I and Doctor Who. We've all heard of Doctor Who. Kevin Eldon played Ned. He's a well-known British comedian guy, apparently. And Essie Davis played Lady Crane. And she's she was in Matrix Reloaded, among many other things. So, yeah, snuck in some fairly well-known people there. And as the show gets bigger, they're more able to do that. Obviously, we got uh, Max Van Sydow, and there's another famous actor appearing later this season in a small role who uh, I won't talk about. As usual, we'll be doing some post-credits spoilery talk, talking about what's coming up next week, and as well as things that we've gleaned from the preseason trailers that are becoming relevant, that are becoming clear. And... So that's a really nice thing. Also, they snuck in a band there. There's the band of Monsters and Men was playing above in the rafters there. So that was clever. And, of course, backstage we get confronted by penis. A big, giant, wart-covered penis. Yeah, that was... <laughs> we didn't really need that. But, you know, it's all it's all fair in, the, in love and genitals. <laughs> yeah. I did not need it. It just... Um... <laughs> After all, you know, this sort of very highly publicized kind of call for more full frontal male nudity. <laughs> that was enough. I'm done. I, <laughs> I don't need any more. If that's, if that's what we're, how we're going to get it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if... Thanks. If, I'm sure there's a lot of... A lot of I, I, it's, it's not my thing, but if, you know, a lot of people out there, if it's like, hey, if they're going to show us a penis, give us like, I don't know, give us like Loris's or something, you know. <laughs> Tormund. Tormund, yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be six feet long, right? <laughs> Tormund uh, Giants yeah. member. The flaccid, warty penis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of members, uh, the Mercy chapter is, of course, a T-Wow chapter. We won't go into detail on it, but that is a lot of what we saw in this scene with Arya that is covered in that chapter a bit. I won't be specific, but it's there's a lot in common there, including the character named Bonobo, who is the dwarf. And in the and in Mercy chapter, this is hardly a spoiler, so I'll go ahead with it. He's wearing a, a big prosthetic penis, kind of making fun of Tyrion being a whoremonger, I suppose. And it's kind of a, a nod to the the full frontal penis, I suppose. So there's a show nod that we, a show to book nod that we probably could have done without. <laughs> but, you know, we can laugh at it. Mm-hmm. Now, but getting back to more uh, sophisticated topics, Arya and Jake and, and the discussion of killing this Lady Crane who is playing the role of Cersei. Arya doesn't like the idea of killing an innocent, brings it up. So the big question is, will she go through with it? Lady Gwen, what do you think? I think that her killing this woman that she thinks is, you know, innocent, hasn't a decent person, would be counter to the advice Ned gave Bran back in Game of Thrones. If you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. If you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps the man does not deserve to die. And she's just confronted with her father in this play, like having him be up there and and she's probably fired up about who he really was because he's being represented so wrongly, so the opposite of who he really was. And so it's like, no, my father was honorable. My father would not do, you know, so it's like right at the right in her consciousness in the important moment there. I, I think the uh, references to her as Lady Stark and all those pointed comments about 
you know, faceless men being servants or slaves. Combined with her noting the innocence of really setting her up to not go through with it. But I did wonder, because Lady Crane is portraying Cersei, who's <laughs> enemy number one on Arya's list. So yeah. there's that possible kind of weird connection there. Yeah, it's a good job. It's, it's the show showing the thing that George says is the only thing worth writing about. Well, it's, he's not the original person who said that, but he agrees with the comment that a human heart and conflict is the only thing worth writing about. And holy crap, Arya's got some conflict right now. And it really comes out on the screen. I like it. Do you think she'll run away? I do. I, I kind of assume that she will run away. She's going to have to run away. She can't just say, no, thank you. The, yeah. the threat was obvious. Yeah, so. that means she dies, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So well, how right. dangerous is that, having the faceless men as enemies? <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Yeah. One either one way or a face is going to be added to the hall. It's pretty menacing. So, yeah. <laughs> um, hopefully, she's learned enough to elude them. Yeah. Um, this this line that Jaken gives her when she says, you know, she doesn't. She, she's like a decent person or whatever. She says, "Does death only come for the wicked and spare the innocent?" There's a lot of that in this episode coming uh, in the future in later episodes and in this episode. Of course, that's a nod to. Hodor. Hodor being the innocent that is not spared. And wouldn't it be ironic if Arya joins a death cult only to reject the killing of innocents while Bran goes off to save the world and has to sacrifice innocents along the way? It's a pretty brutal contrast there. And watching her Thomas Budd help draw our attention to that one. Good job there, Thomas. So, yep, more on the... Uh, I really like this. This whole training phase thing is really neat how they all kind of push that together i kind of mentioned it earlier but it really yeah it really bears double mention yeah i think it i think it, it really does because it's it's really hi highlighted i think we might have even talked about it how they were all in training yeah earlier yeah we did but um not earlier i mean earlier in the season but it's really highlighted here how it, that's ending yeah so it's, it's it's a neat observation and in the past if we're going to check on how that pattern went in the past like john of course and rob kind of got there first john is kind of doing it over but they all made so many mistakes because that's that's realistic you're young you come along you learn things but you still make mistakes even when you after you learn things so what will Arya's mistakes be we've just seen one of brand's mistakes a big one and you know we saw john make some mistakes sansa might be making a mistake here she's getting in in charge but she's already you know lied about the veil knights and that that could turn out to be a mistake it might cause some trust issues with john etc we'll see all right i'm all decked out in ironborn gear today i got my victorian Greyjoy shirt of course i did not expect victorian to be in the show i almost you know several seasons ago i wasn't sure that the ironborn would get much of a plot line at all and when the ironborn were cast the law of conservation of actors meant Victorian was highly unlikely to be cast. Our best hope was that Euron and Victorian would be similar in the show, like they would mash them together, but that doesn't appear to be the case. It's all Euron. So, hey, wearing this in honor of my boy Victorian. Of course, I don't think Victorian's a great guy. I just like the character and how he's written. He's, you know, a terrible person. But, hey, I like Tywin, too, but he's also a terrible person. It's just how he's written. They're good characters. They're well-written. So we got a King's Moot. That was cool. The King's Moot had its ups and downs. Mostly, well, I mostly liked it. Strong acting by Asha Yara and Theon. What do you think there, Lady Gwyn? I agree with that completely. Uh, I think Alfie Allen was absolutely fantastic in this scene. He, Theon's struggle was so visible in his face, his facial acting. 
you could really see him give up on that dream of being king once and for all. And at the same time, you could see Yara. She's not sure she really trusts him until the moment when he finally says it. But she's she's kind of on pins and needles. Yeah, she had a really like look on her face, like mm, like oh, what's gonna happen it. here. Yeah. <laughs> I think she expected the worst from him. Yeah, so. I think so. Because she did, at first, as soon as he arrived, that's what she was thinking. And maybe she, even after he explained, no, I'm not here to do that, she probably still had some doubts. Yeah, yeah so. Um, Poi again, noticed something really great about this scene. I thought it was great. I, I tend not to notice these things. Uh, he definitely does. When Theon was making this decision in the King's Moot, they were playing the same music uh, that they played after... He burnt, not as he was burning Rob's letter, but in the scene right after he burns Rob's letter and makes the choice, you know, he's going to betray him and make that run at being a king for himself. Is he, He's being baptized by his, I guess, was it Aaron? Yeah. Um, and that's the music. They, we, went, we went back. All the way back to season three. I guess that's yeah. season three, right? Yeah. So right as he gets burnt, writes that letter to Rob to warn him and then he changes his mind and burns it. Same yeah. music. That is awesome. What a great catch. Good job, Yoke Boy. See? Yoke Boy's still present in this episode, even without being present in this episode. Yes. Now, it's a big... This is that this scene was a rub for some people because of, again, this is book expectations. Uh, Ashea really pointed this one out again. Ashea is also present in this episode without being present in this episode. And she, she got us to think more about how Kinslaying was a bit of a... There was something off about the scene because of Kinsling. But Asha talks about executing Euron. And then, of course, Euron talks about murdering Asha and, and Theon. And it's just kind of... If you don't think about it, it doesn't feel right because you're not supposed to... Kinslaying is like one of the... If not the biggest taboo in all of Westeros. But really, the show hasn't really cared about that. It's just a different canon. It's not a bad thing. It's just different. We just have to make sure we wrap our heads around that or it's going to feel wrong. There's tons of examples of this. Dorne, all kinds of kin slaying. Ramsey kin slays Roos, although he at least lied about it. You know, it wasn't that big a deal that Tyrion killed Tywin. I mean, it was more about him killing his father, not about it being his kin. You know, it's just a you killed your own father. That's, you know, that's rough. But it was, they didn't really couch it in, oh, he's cursed because he's a kinslayer. That's, that just doesn't, hasn't really come up. So, something to keep in mind, folks. It's just different in the show. Kinslaying, it's not good in show canon, but it isn't like the most horrible, you're cursed by the gods type of thing. So, just, you got to keep that in mind. Now, the crowning ceremony itself, I thought this was much stronger than the king's moot. I thought the filmmaking was great, the voiceover was great, and it reminded me of the funeral, of Balon's funeral, which is also really well done. What did you think, Lady Gwen? Yeah, I agree. I think it, I like this part better than the King's Moot. I also, um, I was glad it took as long as it did, <laughs> <laughs> considering what was going on while they were doing that. But um, one thing I noticed is, well, this, you know, it's, this is purely a religious ritual, and it's something that Ironborn do obviously but it struck me that the drowning it you know when he he rose it's another example um that this season of someone not dying or not staying dead when they should have done yeah and starting with uh gregor i guess that was the end of last season but john danny we've got these people kind of 
Yeah. We shouldn't be here. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a nod to that to everyone dying. I guess you could say he wasn't really dead, but it's pretty much, it's a parallel. It's a strong parallel regardless. I really like that. Um, yeah, in general, I thought that was that was a great scene. That, that priest is a, is a really good authoritative voice, that guy playing Aaron. What's funny is he's Aaron, but I don't know if, I'm not sure that he's Aaron Greyjoy because his, his age would be off. Or maybe they're just saying, oh, he's a priest, so priests can't inherit. Maybe that's a little piece of show canon that they've kind of assumed. Either way, it's fine. So the the main thing as far as driving this plot forward is this, this whole Iron Fleet business, which is Asha and, and Theon stealing all these ships. They jumped on that opportunity really quickly, apparently. That was a little, maybe a little rushed. But hey, that's we're kind of I think we're kind of used to rushing things a bit by now. Now, so this is a big difference from show to books as well. In the books, there's already an established Iron Fleet, and it's quite potent. It's got larger ships than just the long ships. It's a, it's a proper military fleet, not just uh, a bunch of, like, Viking raider ships, which is kind of what you think of when you think of a fleet of Ironborn. Uh, these proper warships, things like that. This is what fought in Robert's Rebellion. This was defeated by Stannis. And Victorian is the one who... who controls it effectively and they're loyal to him which is why Euron can't just say take them over which is why he sends Victorian to Marine rather than just taking it over himself because well he can't they he's he's worried that they won't follow him because they're more loyal to Victorian so a little smart bit of politicking by Euron and so in the show it seems they're just now building it. they're calling it I'm going to build the Iron Fleet etc that's referred to kind of obliquely like that and so but it seems obvious that Probably Asha is going to do what Victorian was going to do, which was steal Euron's plan about an alliance. Of course, she can't go marry Victorian like, like, or marry Daenerys like Victorian's plan was. He was going to steal her from Euron. So obviously Asha can't do that. Well, I guess she maybe can. It doesn't seem likely, though. <laughs> they probably won't do the uh, same-sex wedding uh, in Westeros there. That seems unlikely. But, uh... You know, it's something along those lines that's being done. I guess the major difference is here, they're talking about, they brought up the dragons, they brought up, you know, allying with the dragons, which makes sense. Ally yourself to the person who has the most power and use that to help take over Westeros. No dragon horn, though. That's a big thing. We were really wondering if there would be a dragon horn. I'm not surprised there wasn't. I figured it was would have been a cool thing for the show to do, like a real easy visual way, like someone blows the horn, the dragon's kind of react to it it seems like it could have played out pretty well on screen i guess it's not too late for that but it seems unlikely seems like they they would have shown it if it was going to happen probably no makoro either they're doing different red priests which we'll be talking about soon this one particularly intimidating red priest kinvara that's in the Varus and Tyrion scene we'll be talking about that shortly but yeah so that looks like a few other cuts from that plot line but maybe we'll see some maybe they'll sneak some bits and pieces in there and there's, but there's another possible parallel to Victorian that might be showing up. And as we transition, visually they transition from Iron Islands to Vase Dothrak by showing the Ironborn with particularly Euron staring out over the cliff as the ships went away. And it transitions to Danny standing on the cliff looking down at Vase Dothrak. Well, the possible parallel here is, well, Victorian had his arm like, you know, infected with whatever. And it was you know, rotting away, basically, until Makoro cleansed it with fire in that real creepy scene where it's not Victorian's POV for a minute anymore, even though it's his chapter, which is really unusual. So there's a theory out there that I strongly support that the cure 
for grayscale will be similar, like burning the arm, doing that same kind of burning the arm, burning the disease away. Maybe that'll work. And of course, with red priests on Danny's side, you know, in in great numbers, apparently, that could be the way they go with this. So let's move on to Vase Dothrak, since we we're just starting to talk about that. Uh, funny thing happening here. Danny is getting Yara and Theon, if our prediction is right. Plus, she's already got Ilaria and, you know, potentially and company. So, you know, Danny has a long string of titles. Queen of Marine, Queen of this, Mother of Dragons, Breaker of Chains, you know, Queen of the Seven Kingdoms, Queen of the Roinar, Queen of the, all that. She's also now Burner of Calls and Queen of the Cockless. Check that out, right? She's got Varus. Now she's going to have Theon, apparently. And she's already got the Unsullied. That's like 5,000, you know, cockless guys. So, it's an interesting kind of thing to collect on your team there. But, can't say those aren't talented folks. So, that's cool. Good job, Danny. <laughs> she doesn't even know <laughs> that she's collecting all these people. She's going to get back and be like, what is... Alright, these guys are helping me out. I don't understand this pattern, but... <laughs> So, do you think, uh, what, what, what do you think about where Jorah might go? She orders him to, to cure himself. We've got a few ideas. Lady Gwyn, what do you think? I, I liked some of the ideas. The idea of, uh, Karth or Ashai. Yeah. Could we see Quaith again? Yeah. Probably my wishful thinking. It was interesting that on the show, yeah. Quaith talked to Jorah, not Danny. So, there's yeah. already kind of a, they know each other already. That's, mm -hmm. you wonder if they thought that far ahead, but, yeah. We've seen them pick up a couple of little lingering things this season, so yeah, maybe, maybe we need to give them a little more credit. So yeah, Ashai, Karth, <laughs> maybe the Red Priests, maybe Volantis. If he goes to Volantis, you know, he could maybe run into. Maybe that's where you know Asha and Theon will wind up on their way, like Tyrion and Varys did. That seems to be like the halfway point, um, part halfway point to going there. So if if other people stopped off there. Jorah could stop off there. They could encounter each other. Something like that. Watching her, Matthew Hent suggests Old Town, which is a very cool idea because it would allow Jorah to come in contact with Sam. And Sam and Jorah talking could get... He could learn more about Gior. He already found out that his father's dead from Tyrion. But he doesn't know necessarily about the White Walkers and all that. And that might be what how Danny learns about what's going on in the North is through Jorah going to Old Town. The rub with that is Jorah going to Old Town is a bit problematic because of who his ex-wife is, which is Lynesse Hightower. And the Hightowers are, you know, big in Old Town and they should be able to recognize him on sight because he married, you know, a Hightower. They presumably attended the wedding. At least a lot of them did. So that is a possible problem, but I love the idea anyway because it does set up some very cool crossing of plot streams. Do you, what do you think of that possibility? Yeah, I think it's possible, but I think that you know the high tower. Although I don't know on the show if that's you know they're going to make a big deal of it. Yeah, they might just try to. I would sneak that under uh, the radar. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to see um, more kind of plots interconnecting and i expect we will as the the show's gonna compress down over the next season or so and get more people on, on the same page or in the same location so it'd be cool yeah i agree 
So we'll just have to wait and see on that. Very exciting. So let's talk about Marine, Tyrion, Varys, and Kinvara. Very powerful scene. Uh, Kinvara is pretty spooky. She's got sort of that season two Melisandre thing going, but perhaps even more intimidating because she unnerves Varys. And unnerving Varys is hard to do. And more good acting there. Conleth Hill really, you know, his shoulders hunched. His, he could see he was breathing heavily. He was very intimidated. And he stood tall to her and she just backed him down. That was, it was really something. Now, a couple people commented on the appearance of her. Lady Gwen, talk about the thematic connection here. Last week, I think I mentioned is that there is definitely a thematic connection between Melisandre and Quaid's costuming. Mm. Uh, there is, in Kinvara's costuming, the same elongated hexagonal motif, which is present in the necklace, which is, I think the necklace is the same, more or less, as Mel's. Yeah, it looked the same to me. Uh, yeah, and the dre- and she also had it on her dress, which apparently Melisandre does too, but it's harder to see because hers is so dark. Oh. Quaith, it was very obvious. So there's something connecting these three women, whether they go back to Quaith or not. That is very fitting. In the books, Quaith is a shadow binder from Ashai. That's a tie to Melisandre. It doesn't necessarily have to be a red priest thing, but if you go by show simplification instead of addressing the fact that Melisandre is, belongs to several different magical disciplines. They just kind of roll it all up into Red Priest and just say some Red Priests are a little different from each other, like Thoros is different than Mel, etc. Speaking of Thoros, no necklace for him, no indication that he's wearing any kind of similar garb. And Rila Fukushima, who was playing the kind of uh, Asian, it was the Asian actress playing another Red Priestess last season that, that Tyrion and Varys encounter on the long bridge at Volantis. Also, she's not wearing the necklace, so... Different different things there. Now, in that scene, I was really kind of yelling at the screen a bit in, you know, in, as a fan when Kedvara says, do you, should I say, should I tell you what the voice said? Should I tell you who said those words? Yes! Yes, tell us! Of course we want to know. Come on, Varus, say yes. Jeez. We also have a pending firestorm powder keg type situation with zealots versus zealots. I'm really interested in this possibility here because of how destructive it is we have zealots taking over king's landing faith of the seven zealots, and we have zealots in marie allying themselves to danny calling her the prince that was promised or the one that was promised in this case and we have melisandre a different red priest is calling john the prince that was promised so how's all that going to play out probably not peacefully is my guess that's that's about as all i can predict at this point but just imagine the Kinvara says she's going to send out priests, a bunch of priests preaching about Daenerys. That's just going to stir up so much, especially with her already doing all these things she's done. I mean, she's already proven herself. She's she's immune to fire. How does that not stick out massively in a fire worshiping religion? That's <laughs> like that's like whoa. There she there she is. She's clearly important. So wow, yeah, it's a big big deal. But it's really just uh, just getting started. We're really not sure where that's going to go. And uh, another thing about Kinvara being such a high-ranking red priestess, she's taking the place of Benero from the books. Benero is the high priest of the Red Temple in Volantis, which is the largest one that we've been told about. There are other great red temples elsewhere, but it's possibly the largest one. And... 
he's preaching about Daenerys openly when when Tyrion and Jorah go by, just saying she's the prince that was promised. She's Azor Ahai, blah, blah, the dragons, etc. Just He's also preaching some crazy stuff like, you know, worship worship the Lord of Light and everyone will be will live forever. Like, what? That's scary. Everyone will live forever. That sounds more like what the others are doing, living forever, although they're not really living forever. Or maybe that's, you know, John coming back to life, Melisandre living forever. So... If Kinvara's risen this high in the Red Priestesses, how old is she? How long has she been around? Is she just that talented, or is she just is this indication that she's really ancient as well? Hmm. No way to know for sure, but cool to think about. Maybe not so cool to imagine, like literally picturing her as a four hundred year old woman, like that other scene. You know, that's not as fun. But still, I wonder. Let us move on to the big topic we've saved most of the episode for that because the implications for the books are i mean this is one of the biggest scenes these set of scenes here one of the biggest book implication scenes we've ever seen on tv most things do not generate this much discussion this much expectations or this much ah just anxiety whatever you want to however you want to put it it's it's big so we'll start with the children making the White Walkers thing. Uh, it wasn't f- super surprising to book readers. I mean, it was somewhat surprising to see it confirmed. It was, it's been an idea in the fandom for a long time. And there's some, now that it's been confirmed though, new evidence has popped up that's showing that we were told all the way, all along rather. Here's one of my favorites. Hat tip to our buddy Lucifer Means Lightbringer of a mythical... Uh, Ah, Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast, who's been on our Ashai episode and our Dane Part 2 episode. He found this quote from Cotter Pike. When Cotter Pike sees Sam after Sam returns from the wall, he says, Sam the Slayer, he said by way of greeting. Are you sure you stabbed an other and not some child's snow knight? Holy crap. Child's snow knight. Children's snow knights the others are armored and wearing swords and they're basically made of snow and ice and they're made by children oh damn that is awesome great catch and in (laughs) retrospect it's pretty damn obvious it's one of those things that you you could easily that we all pretty much missed 99.9 percent of the fandom but it's in retrospect it's really obvious it's like what a weird thing to say a child snow knight what that's bizarre, right? It's like a weird insult. Like, are you sure didn't stab? It's so specific, you know? <laughs> and yeah, so what did you think? Were you surprised, Lady Gwen? No, not entirely surprised. Um, we actually discussed this in our Long Night episode last year. Uh, we discussed the others and the Long Night and all kinds of stuff at great length. Our conclusion was that the children of the forest had been driven north by men. And then the others originated in the north, so we kind of thought it was logical to think the children had created them, and that there was some sort of, you know, ice sorcery. Uh, so I mean, we kind of, kind of called it, you know, but we didn't really feel like there was a ton of evidence. It was a, it was a gut feeling. Yeah, and I don't remember anyone suggesting that they made them from men, yeah. which is maybe not book canon, but seems likely. They certainly are shaped like people. They, they don't look like children. That was the one thing that people were like, huh, if the children made the others, why do they look like mankind? That was one thing that was a bit of a 
problem for the theory, something that people pointed to as perhaps possible counter evidence. Well, I guess that's been clearly addressed. It looks like it's just they're converted humans. Pretty cool that they used the actor playing Knight's King. By the way, it's Night King in the show, Knight's King in the book. Knight's King as in King of the Night's Watch because he was the 13th Lord Commander and took over the Night's Watch, kind of ruled as a king. Uh, so that's the difference. Knight, King, Knight's King. It's it's easy to say one when you mean the other, so we're not going to worry about that. But it's, it's worth clarifying. So, well, very, very uh, interesting stuff here. There's a lot to talk about. We're probably going to jump around a bit as we discuss all these different implications for the books. But here's one that I like a lot. Now we've learned that the children are responsible for this. Here's something that Watson or James Van Sickle suggested that touches on a common theme in the books, which is that myths derive from truths, but the myths themselves have been around so long that this truth is distorted, that, that the, it's like a game of telephone. When you tell somebody, you read someone a sentence, and you know by the time it gets through five or ten different people, that sentence has changed, it's become exaggerated, it's different. So extrapolate that across thousands of years, and you can understand how a story of the children creating the others could change over time, or be perverted in a sense, or be misunderstood. So here's a great quote. We talk about some of this in our Night's King episode that was made, I guess it's been about a year and a half ago, but got a lot of good stuff in there. Do recommend you checking it out. But some of this information is a little more current. A woman was his downfall. A woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice. And when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. Compare that to the idea that the children, depicted as female only in the TV show to this point, and making knights king. The idea of a woman tempting a man and changing him into this other-like being is perhaps the mythological story, or rather the mythological unpacking of the truth here. Few, if any, would know that truth, considering it's thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. They wouldn't know the real story. So, and they wouldn't assume a transformation. You don't just go, oh, it must have been some sort of magical ritual that transformed a man into another. That's got to be it. It would make more sense, or at least it could make more sense, for that to be interpreted as some sort of breeding. Like, as in this story. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her. Breeding with her. But actually, it's not breeding with her. It's this magical thing. So you'd say that in the myth, that what we're told by this myth is that breeding of these two is what created the others or something like that. In reality, it was the, this man was sort of tempted into going off with the children, but really they had this sinister thing in mind, which was to transform human beings into weapons that they could then turn and use against the first men who were destroying them. And of course, ironically, if the others are responsible for the long night, which seems very likely, then the first men, or humankind in general, had to create a weapon to stop a weapon that was made out of them. And if it's depicted at all the same, this Azor Ahai story comes up. It's a par nice parallel here. Azor Ahai was, had to stab his wife Nissa Nissa in the heart to make this powerful weapon to fight the darkness. And what we just saw depicted on TV was an obsidian blade shoved into the actor playing Night's King. That was a nice little touch. 
shoved into his chest to make their ultimate weapon. That's just a brilliant little parallel there. Even if it wasn't fully intended, it works really nicely. So, now, to be fair, the rest of the Night's King legend doesn't quite fit as well with that story of, of the Night King, Night's King chasing this woman and loving her. Be, but it's truly ancient history, so of course there's going to be some things that maybe don't fit perfectly. Like we said, it's a game of telephone expressed over thousands of years. The truth gets distorted. But the timeline is also a little funky. This is something I, I we're going to need to think about this a little longer. It's only like it's only been 72 hours since this episode, and this really this really deserves farther pondering and really thinking about the timeline. Something we definitely didn't have time for with so many other things to talk about. But I'll throw out there the basics. Okay, if this guy, if this Night King was was turned into an other, the first other, well, why is there a wall already? If he's Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, what is there a wall there for? Were the others, shouldn't there have already been others for there to have been a wall? Eh, yeah. And that would have already meant there was a long night, so he couldn't have been part of that. So maybe... There's just some important details about the past that we're not aware of. Like maybe the others, it wasn't just an overnight thing. It wasn't that. The Lightbringer is made, others are defeated, and they're gone forever. Maybe it was more gradual. Maybe it was a, a long struggle, and then the others finally vanished one day, and they've been gone until now. That's just one possibility out of many. Um, but here's another really funny thing that is curious. Shouldn't the children have no trouble at all dealing with the others slash white walkers. It's, and showing that obsidian was part of the ritual to create them. It's almost like a, I don't know, it's like a kryptonite thing where the thing that, I mean, Superman isn't literally made by kryptonite, but the thing that is part of them is also the thing that can destroy them. What did you have any thoughts on that lady Gwen? Well, yeah. Um, quite. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't let you talk they... for a while. Let, let you, let you get some thoughts in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. The thoughts are many and different. Yeah, where to start, right? <laughs> so the the children should be, you know, easily able to kill White Walkers with Obsidian. Um, I think in the books it's made pretty obvious that Obsidian is their weakness. Uh, Sam says, he finds in a book, it says, fire will dismay them. They're vulnerable to Obsidian. It's a slight difference with fire. Uh, then he t he also tells John, I found mention of Dragonglass. The children of the forest used to give the Night's Watch a hundred obsidian daggers every year during the Age of Heroes. Well, why were they doing that? Probably to give them weapons against these creatures they created that would be vulnerable like, to Yeah, here's how you undo this. Melisandre. <laughs> She she terms it dragon dragonglass. She's the first first person to call call it um frozen fire. She says it's the old Valyrian translation, and she says, "Small wonder it's anathema to these cold children of the mm. other." And she doesn't mean the other, as she's talking about the great other. Yeah, the obs obsidian frozen fire, like frozen fire. How does nothing, no two word phrase encapsulates the song of ice and fire better than that? Yeah. I think. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's cool. They you know, George describes them as ice made flesh. The show seemed to portray them as flesh turned into ice which is a pretty minor difference but they they have magical control over ice but they're vulnerable to fire made ice so yeah just an interesting kind of loop of themes there so 
Yeah. Okay, well, let's take another quick break, and we'll come back with plenty more on this topic. There is so much to say. We're both a little just, we don't even know where to begin. There's so many things to say, but we'll get them all said. Maybe not in the right order, but we'll get them all out there. <laughs> Be right back, folks. Yeah, this whole, the, the whole just, Obsidian's always been really important, but now it's just more important. It's just being driven to the forefront even more than it was before. I want to say something else about the Night King in terms of what we learned from George. George has indicated that there probably isn't a Night King figure in the modern storyline. There may have, the legendary Night King is his own thing, but there isn't just some central other other bad guy villain that we can expect to see. Maybe we can, but he has kind of downplayed that possibility, maybe to be sneaky. But so far, the books have given us zero indication uh, directly that that's going to be the case. So we'll see. It looks like uh, the others may not have, you know, one ruler or one person in charge. And I, and I, of course, back in the day, I one of the things I said about the others creating the children, I don't know how long ago I said this, maybe is maybe seven years ago, who knows, a long time ago, it wouldn't be very Martin-esque for the children to agree as a whole race on something. There would have to be, I would guess that there were some children that were like, yes, we need to make these others, I don't know what they called them, uh, to fight back against the first men. And there probably were some that were like, no, we shouldn't do this. It's, it's, it's too dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And maybe that's why there are children now that were, or not just now, but, but thousands of years ago. At some point, the children decided to stop fighting the first men. Maybe they were obeying the pack. Maybe they decided that what they did was was too wrong. Unleashing this evil on the world was something that they need to, you know, make up for. But at some point, the children started helping the men instead of fighting them. And maybe that's, again, related to the pact. But even that is hard to say for sure because the pact was broken by the Andals later. The pact was between the first men and the children. But the Andal invasion came later, and the Andals had no reason to, you know, obey the pact that was made thousands of years before. So they went back to burning down the werewoods, and, and probably weren't that many children around for them to kill. But I, if there were, the ones that they did see probably got killed too. So, yeah, there's there's all that. Um, now, as for taking this back to the show a little bit and, and try to trying to make sense of some of these connection points. What we're shown is the wire. This, and this ties into what you were saying before Lady Gwynne about how one of the reasons you all made this guess in your show was because of the proximity to where the children have been driven, which is north of the wall to where the others supposedly are born. And those, that, that proximity indicates a, a potential for connection, which seems to have been confirmed here. But it's shown on the show is that they're kind of tied to the spot, the spot where they're born, the spot where these black stones are arranged in a spiral, which is not the first time we've seen that. We saw the horses, the slaughtered horses mm -hmm. arranged in a spiral back in, I guess that was season three, maybe season two even. But it's that same pattern that we saw a long time ago. And when Bran sees the ritual, the children, there's no frost, there's no ice. It's now permanently frozen. The tree is frozen. The stones are frozen. Was the area fertile before? In in show canon, clearly it was, it seems. But in book canon, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think uh, it seems likely that the, hmm. the north, that you know, area wasn't always just the frozen. That's a huge, you know, looking at the maps behind you. It's just this huge area that's just a big chunk of ice now it seems 
possible that it was all part of a one big fertile continent at one point. Yeah, it's it's definitely possible. And you, well, the thing that makes me wonder though is that Westeros is very northern as far yeah. as the as far as the planet. If you look at a world map, the fingers lines up with Bravos basically. So Essos is mostly south of Westeros on a global scale. So you'd think that they would be cold anyway, but maybe not. Maybe the world actually goes a lot farther north there and, you know, whatever their equivalent of some sort of polar ice caps has been altered by, you know, this whatever messes with the seasons. So it's really hard to say, but there is some fertile valleys in the north, like the Valley of the Fens has a lot of green in it. And that could be a hint that that was more widespread in that area before. So, hmm, very, very cool. Now, a couple other questions. The children making the White Walkers, were those black stones, those obelisks around the site of this ritual, asked uh, by several people asked this question, uh, including Watchner's summer child, now, were those the same oily black stones that we see in other places? Well, it could be a nod to that. I'm guessing if the show wouldn't wouldn't be so expansive on that, and that might be why we saw Obsidian instead of something else as far as creating the others. Although I tend to think that that is what the show canon will do if they delve, I mean, book canon will do if they delve into that at all. I'm not sure that we'll ever learn the specifics of how the children made the first others. If we do, that would be pretty sweet. And of course, it would have to come through a brand vision. I really can't see where else it would come. So, <clears throat> let's see. But there's another question. We, we touched on this a bit before, which was that the children should be able to kill the White Walkers because of the obsidian. They know they made them. They maybe built in this weakness. Well, if that's the case, how did they get out of control? Why? Why didn't the children just put the other ten? Like, oh, this is getting out of control. They're causing the long night or their whatever what was it that why can't they kill them what is the problem now and what what went wrong in general it seems like maybe well the the children are so tied to nature when they created these beings that any being magical or not wants to propagate itself any species wants to continue itself and these are magical beings so their rules of propagation are very different i guess they they steal babies? <laughs> is that is that their method of propagation? Or is it something to do with what we heard about this half siring half human children with a female other in the original Knights King legend? It's some somewhere in between? I, I don't know. Maybe we're mixing show and book canon. Lady Gwen, give me your thoughts on that. Well, we had some speculation about this when we did our episode about the Long Night, because they, it is mentioned several times that they the others lay with women, human women, to sire terrible half human children. Uh, we actually came to the conclusion that the Night's Queen, if you want to call her that, that it's a good name for Knight's her. Queen, yeah. <laughs> uh, may have been one of these offspring because it seems pretty clear that there's no female others. Um, but she's very other. The way she's described is very kind of otherly. So yeah. you know, first of all, not having females could have been a fail-safe kind of thing. But, you know, the children created these others. They're all men thinking they won't be able to propagate. But like you said, do they have this kind of natural desire to do that? Um, and so they go off and sire half-breeds with, with female women. So in terms of actual propagation, we wondered if uh, Craster's line could be descended from those hybrids 
uh, would give a literary purpose to Craster's incest, kind of like the Targaryens keeping their bloodlines pure, right? It's mm. been speculated for a long time that there's something to do about his bloodline that makes his male children so attractive to the others. Very interesting. Yeah, so that is a, and, and that is as much as we can't be sure about the creation process of the others, the giving of sons to the others is both a book and show thing. So it's a very strong chance that there are some parallels close or not so close. And I also wonder about this. I still want to talk about this whole getting out of control thing and what originally happened. Mm. Without understanding how that happened, we do we can talk about some parallels to that happening, which is Gregor is the really obvious one, a monster getting out of control, creating a monster to do your bidding, to be an ultimate weapon, getting out of control. Gregor's not out of control, but this makes me think he will be, and we've always kind of considered that possibility, this whole Frankenstein thing. Another possibility is the dragons themselves. Danny created them, sort of. You know, Matt not literally created them, but in a sense she created them, or at least brought them back. And they may have been engineered initially, as we talked about in other episodes, like Ashai, our Ashai episode, is how maybe the dragons were first created by some other race through some sort of magical engineering. Mel's shadow babies, another possibility for something getting out of control. Or a more literal or a less literal monster like Danny's followers, like the zealots we talked about. Maybe those getting out of control and being, un, you know, unleashing them on Westeros and not being able to control it. To a lesser extent, even the Dothraki might qualify for that. You know, they're a vicious and bloody group of, you know, killers. Uh, so one suggestion, there's a lot to think about there. Gregor getting out of control, I really think that's going to happen now. We kind of always suspected that possibility, but now it's almost like... I almost want to call it a slam dunk, like definitely going to happen. But how, like what's it's going to mean? Like in what way does he get out of control and what does he do when he gets out of control? That, oh boy, no idea. <laughs> so along those lines, maybe that's what got out of control with the, chil with the children creating the White Walkers. The thing that maybe, maybe was the unintended consequence was them being able to raise the dead. Maybe the children didn't intend for that possibility. And that's something the children would have a hard time dealing with. If the White Walkers can create an army of the dead, that army of the dead it can be sort of their human shields against obsidian arrows and such like that, which you'd think that would be so easy to shoot an obsidian arrow at these walkers and these the children shouldn't have a lot of trouble with that. Yeah, look how uh, easy it was for Vera. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah. Like, cut, you got one. There's only three others, which just... You know, like, <laughs> but those whites, it's, they were kind of a, yeah, insurmountable... Yeah. They really were, and it's interesting because I have this in my notes somewhere for this episode, and I can't find it. But I, I'm just—I think I wanted to credit the person who pointed this out to us. But back in earlier seasons, the depiction of others were without armor. It may be like when Sam stabbed the other Sam stabbed no armor; she was basically shirtless. So you wonder if maybe the others started wearing armor after they after what Sam did. Or maybe they started wearing others' armor because of they knew the obsidian weapons were out there and they had to protect themselves from that. Yeah. Either way, I like the idea of them kind of adapting like nature would or like an intelligent species would to their very overwhelming weakness as strong as they are. I mean, scratched by a dragon glass and you just melt. That's a, 
pretty big problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, I, so, but I really like the idea of the whites as an unintended consequence. The children had no, didn't see that coming, and that's something they can't deal with because their potent, their weapons, obsidian weapons potent against the others, obsidian weapons useless against whites. They just took like a bad, brittle dagger against something that is not going to bother, not going to be worried about being stabbed. You have to shred them to pieces or set them on fire or something like that. So I'm guessing the children's only weapon against them was fire. Maybe some magic stuff too, but who knows? Anyway, so much to unpack in the scene. Let's talk about Bran going into the vision when he shouldn't be, messing around with forces that are beyond his understanding at this point and how things proceed from there. Now, there's some conflict and some, you know, interpretations of this as a, as a paradox, which I agree with. It is sort of a paradox, but we don't have to see it that way. And here's why. First of all, let me, let me just bring back a few things that happened in the scene. Okay, so what happens is Bran is touched in his dream and that, or his vision, and that allows the Night King to invade their safe space because of this touch. Now, there's other meanings for this touch that we'll get to, but for now, the meaning is, the implication right away is the Three-Eyed Blood Raven says, okay, well, now he's coming. Now they're coming for you. You have to become me. I have to teach you everything I know really quickly. And as we're told in the behind the episode thing, it's like a downloading. It's like they kind of connect and start to, it's like connecting an external hard drive or something. And he's trying to get as much info as he can. So there's a couple of interpretations of why Bran is seeing what he sees at the pivotal moment. It's sort of like, it's almost puzzling. It's like, why is Bran seeing this scene of Rickard letting, you know, telling Ned, sending Ned off to the Vale with Benjen and Hodor standing there? It's kind of like, this is something important? Okay. Well, maybe it was. Maybe we're just not seeing the importance of that scene. Maybe it has something to do with, maybe the showing of Benjen is important. Or maybe it's just part of the paradox where Bloodraven knew Bran had to be at that moment in time for this whole thing to work properly so he could save himself using Hodor. If that's the case, well, it's, it's, it's just a paradox and you can't really go any farther than that other than to say, hey, we've had miraculous things happen in this story before, like Danny bringing, bringing back the dragons, which George flat out calls a miracle. So we can say this is a miracle too. We don't have to assume that Bran can duplicate this, that he can continue to speak through the past. And here's why. All the other times he's released the branch, his vision ends. Did not happen in this scene, though. Mira pulls him away, doesn't break him out of the vision. I think it's because he's in this special downloading state. He's in a deeper dream state because he's getting all this information through this not normal method of sending all his visions from one brain to the other. And so that's why he couldn't wake up. And that's why it's this like unusual, unrepeatable sort of dream state. What's going to bring him back to this dream state where he's in this downloading state? Nothing. He's not going to, there are no more green seers for him to, to, to download information from. So he cannot get back to that point. Hmm. So that's my rant on why it might work as a paradox. There's also something I said in the show only review, which is that, hey, time is a human construct. Time is a limitation of our perception. We don't understand how time works in the real world. Maybe that's too meta to give them an out using that. But I think it's fair to throw out. Mm. So the other major implication 
of this, which I think is potentially huge, though I don't know that it applies to the books. It's still a really cool possibility for the show is, okay, what if Bran goes through the wall? Does that mean Night King can follow him through the wall because of that touch? Is this a similar kind of ward that has now been broken? You have any thoughts on that, Lady Gwen? Is that is that just a too hard, too hard to say or No, I, I think that's a really good idea because um you know he's got it, it's a mark. That that's a literary trope. I was kind of reading up about it last night. Uh it's related to the mark of the beast, but it's basically, you know there's there's something to this. I, I don't expect that to go away. So whether it affects the wall, whether somebody figures it out before and Bran can never go past the wall again in order to save humankind, I don't that know. Would be, think... That would be sort of like, some people expected that he would stay in the tree forever. Now this, yeah. is, of course, in the show, he has, clearly isn't. In the books, it doesn't necessarily mean he won't leave the tree in the books or that he will, but... Maybe this is the show's equivalent. Instead of leaving the tree, he leaves the tree, but still can't cross the wall. Maybe in the books, he can't leave the tree at all. But uh, he could. I, I, I kind of this kind of pushes me toward thinking he will leave the tree. Although I was a, I was one of those people who thought he wouldn't. At least there's a good chance of that. But you were you were on the other side of that, right? You you thought he would leave, right? I did think he would leave. Yeah. So all right, looking like you might be right there. But whether <laughs> he whether he can get back where he wants to go is another question. I guess. So. <laughs> yeah. And the same setup is there. We don't know if it's going to be something similar, some sort of time travel paradox will happen in the books, but the opportunity is there because Bran did, you know, his father did hear through, through the werewood. He didn't hear, you know, maybe a specific word. He heard, you know, a rustling in the, the leaves. But that could be setting up the ability for him to maybe speak to the past. I don't think that George is going to go all high magic and have him just be able to just do this over and over. I've seen theories like, oh, Bran's the one that drove the Mad King mad. Bran's the one that spoke to Rhaegar telling him to do that or, or some other green seer did these things. And so that just opens up a whole ball of wax that is just impenetrably large for possibilities. Like all the way for anything from those things, all the way to Bran Stark. This Bran Stark is Bran the Builder. The same, he's gone back in time. All he's done all these things. I mean, that's just too many possibilities there. I suppose that has to be possible, but I yeah don't, don't think it's going to be that. That's just too magical. I think that's too big, too powerful. Yeah. I think it's going to be more like the Danny thing, where it's a one-time special event that that is very meaningful towards the rest of the story. Uh, is that kind of how you feel about it? Yes, prob- probably. Um, I I did some reading about this time travel this morning. There was an article in uh, Business Insider, I think. Theoretical physicist called Sean Carroll uh, explained the time traveling in this scene for us. <laughs> he it, he called it a consistent casual loop, which is something in theoretical physics where someone from a later time goes back, alters the events of the past, but it's consistent with how the events will later play out. It creates the future that sends the time traveler back, which is something like we saw in the movie 12 Monkeys. Mm-hmm. I love that happened. movie. I'm sorry, I just spoiled it for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's okay to spoil movies that have been out for what, 15 years? Oh yeah, wait. So, um, so, but it's, and it's not really a spoiler. But no, the not a uh, paradox a, in that case. But the other one, the inconsistent one, where you're changing the past, mm. where you're sort of like erasing things that might have happened, or that's an inconsistent. Okay. casual loop and that would be a paradox so so there you go folks that's a theoretical physicist saying that what we saw on this show was not a paradox 
There you go. Now, you may disagree, <laughs> but he's a theoretical physicist and we're not, so I'm going to go with his opinion, frankly. I thought it was a paradox, but a couple I people did too. pointed me to these, these uh, really in-depth analyses. So yeah, that, but that's why that's I brought up the meta of our, it's being it's a limit of our human perception. We don't know. These things, just it's just, just what we see. I mean, yeah. infrared light and ultraviolet light are everywhere, but we can't see them, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a lot about our senses that we don't understand, so... That's a whole other discussion. Okay. But and this all assumes that Westeros behaves the way our world behaves. Theoretical yes, in our world. That's so. also very true. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the actual actual escape through the door. Um, you you have a moral conundrum to discuss that I think some people may have slightly missed or maybe didn't fully touch on. Others really hammered in on this point. So take yeah. us away. We did. We got we got a fair amount of feedback about this and. Um, uh, I was aware of it. Is Hodor a hero? People, um, you know, even Christian Nairn seemed to be implying that Hodor sacrificed himself for his friends um, in the same way that Summer may have done. But was he actually aware of what he was doing or was Bran in control of him and kind of forcing him? Uh, some people really felt it was the latter and that Hodor was more of a sacrifice human sacrifice like i think you said is he's maybe like the the human that the children sacrificed so you know i like the idea that hodor was a hero and since george has confirmed that it will play out differently in the books i did find a line in the books that i thought might hint to us that Perhaps we can hope that Hodor actually is real, really doing something heroic of his own free will. Way back in Clash, Bran said to Hodor, you could have been a great knight, or you could have been a knight too, I bet. If the gods hadn't taken your wits, you would have been a great knight. And Hodor's reply, of course, was Hodor. <laughs> and it says he blinked at him with his guileless brown eyes, eyes innocent of understanding. So you can kind of read that, I guess, in one of two ways, either foreshadowing Hodor being a heroic knight or Hodor having absolutely zero understanding of what was happening. Yeah. It, it is a moral now, conundrum. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Well, yeah, well said there. That's a good way to kind of encapsulate the issue here. It's if Bran, if, if Hodor didn't decide to do any of that, if he was just controlled by Bran, then I mean, it's it's heroic in a way, but not with any agency. And of course, it's sad regardless. It's tragic as hell regardless. Because if, if Bran made it happen, then Bran now has to deal with the fact that his mistake led to this. That he is the reason that Hodor is dead, that those children are dead, that the Three-Eyed Blood Raven is dead. He caused all that. And that is not going to, she's going to, it's not going to sit well with him, of course. Even Isaac Hempstead Wright tweeted, good job, Bran. <laughs> you know, and I don't <laughs> think he was patting himself on the back. No. I think he was like, Look what you did, you you naive child. <laughs> now you have a cool idea on where the hold the door could apply to an area north of the wall that could maybe fit in with what we're seeing here. Uh, what what's that? Yeah, I I had wondered when we heard the uh, episode title if the door was going to be the black gate. If we might get to get back there because I expected Brand to be leaving that tree, but. Right. Not so much, but could that be in the books? The um, the door is actually the Black Gate of the Night Fort. So. I like that. I like that idea a lot. The Black Gate, of course, yeah, like you said, it's the, the door of the Night Fort that 
that talks, the talking weirwood door that Sam, that you have to be a brother of the Night's Watch to pass through or have it opened for you by a brother of the Night's Watch. So yeah, I could see that being maybe how they uh, they, they escape back through the wall is going through that. That's kind of the way they got, that's how they got north of the wall. So they maybe it would make sense if they return that way. And if they're being pursued, which we're seeing on the show, it could be that they're being pursued as they try to flee the north. So that would fit very nicely. And the door, that is one door we've seen. That would be quite a door to hold. Although if the children, if, if only a brother in the Night's Watch can pass it, maybe that's a problem with this theory that well, the, the, the undead shouldn't be able to. But if some sort of magic is removed from the wall, some sort of horn, some sort of brand being touched and it allow, you know breaks that ward, all those things could, could happen. And it could just be a mundane door from then on. Well, the the whites whites can pass the door uh, pass the wall. So I that's true. I don't know if the door has a separate magic from the wall, but um, so they could you know the others could be sending their undead servants through to. That's to true. The destruction. Uh, the uh, so. Jafer Flowers Othor thing was something. Um, yeah, very they, important from season, from uh, Clash of Kings. There, yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So here's another question. Uh, this this is maybe more related to the show than book, although it's interesting to think about the possibility. Are all the children dead now on the show? <laughs> Seems <laughs> kind of unlikely that that'll happen in the books. That just all of them will be dead because it's it just won't be. There's there will be no way to show to the reader that there aren't any left. Maybe unless Bran sees it somehow. But we see, I believe, six or seven children in the cave with Bran, and their their sex is ambiguous. Some of them are distinctly female. Others we don't know. So. We may be seeing the same all-female thing that George has just hidden it by giving them kind of, you know, non, you know, they're androgynous names. Like Black Knife is one of them, for example. And Snowy Locks. Like Snowy Locks sounds kind of feminine, but it doesn't have to be. So it's just hard to say, you know, maybe maybe that's something that's, that's something they'll dawn on. It's like, hey, you know what? Brandon Mirror, I'll be looking around in the cave like, you know what? All these children are female. What's up with that? All these others are male. What is up with that? So, I, I kind of doubt that's the way they're going to go in the books, but I almost think that is what's going on in the show. They're, the children, maybe just, that's it. They're gone. That's that. Those were the last ones, and we won't see them again. Uh, maybe. Uh, if I had to bet on it, I think that's what, the way I'd lean. What, what about you? You think they're all gone in the, in the show? In the show, yeah, I think. Because they, would, they'd have to just introduce a whole new pack of yeah. Children of the Forest that... I, I don't see them going that way. I see them yeah. sort of leaving that storyline and now progressing elsewhere. So, yeah, I think that Maybe they leave happen. it open. Like, maybe there's still some out there somewhere, but we won't see them. <laughs> yeah, they're just too far hidden away. But, yeah, they're not going to be a big role anymore, I don't think. Maybe the actual end of the series, like, we'll catch them, like, hiding behind a tree when I'm a wink at Bran. Like, <laughs> we're still out there. <laughs> It'd be like end of Star Wars, or end of Return of the Jedi when they just appear, like, as an image, you know? <laughs> right. Like, oh, we're still watching you from above. Right. <laughs> Yoda, Children of the Forest. It's a little relationship there, right? No, not really. No. Well, there are the ancientness. There's that. And the uh, teach, teaching, teaching old knowledge. You know. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> short <Wow>. green greenish <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey i'm wrong they're they're closer than i thought so <laughs> now we also have interesting related to how many children are there or if they're all gone how many others are there do they have a limited number in book and show now in the books of course we have no way of knowing we've we've saw more others in the prologue and we've seen all the other rest of the yeah. books combined there so were, it's really just yeah. there were six no in idea. the prologue but 
Yeah. We've never seen that many, obviously, together or separately mm. again. So. so there's no way to know at this point in the books whether that's the case. But it could be that there's a limited number and that could that would make sense if they're engineered and they have trouble propagating. Maybe there's maybe they make more through babies. That's their only way. But of course, they can't have they probably can't have that many opportunities to make more of themselves. So in the show, though, there were four at the start of the scene and then one gets killed. So there's three. Is that. Really, is that where we're at now? Are there three? What happened to the one that they made, the baby that they touched and turned, you know, right. made him? Is, is that one still kind of growing up? Is he, he's in a pod somewhere. Getting yeah, they're, they're waiting for him to, <laughs> to oh, replace we the one. Maybe he was. Maybe he replaced the one that Sam killed. That maybe they just replace the same four. So there's always four every time. Yeah. <laughs> he'll he'll crack open that egg and bring him out to replace the one that Mira killed. <laughs> so we talk so much of this around revolves around the possibility of looking back in time, but in the books there's there's some talk of the possibility to look forward, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The um, so Blood Raven talks about um, a the a weirwood and what time means to a weirwood. Uh, he says a weirwood will live forever if left undisturbed. To them, seasons pass in a flutter of moth wing, past, present, and future are one. He's basically saying time is a flat circle, which is that, uh, you know, again, it's almost, it, to, to our brains, it probably seems a little paradoxical, but uh, it's it's definitely implied that the future is accessible to green seers. Remember, Raven knew that Bran was coming. He says, I've been waiting for you. So could he have seen, you know, we touched on this. Could he have seen that this was going to happen? He he could have seen it in the past, you know, looking into past Winterfell. He could have seen what happened to Willis slash Hodor, or he, he could have seen into the future. Um, I definitely got the feeling that he, at a point he knew what was going to happen. Right and, and Bloodraven himself, as a character in the books, was was certainly interested in prophecy. When he was made hand to the king in, I believe it was two o nine, it was King Aerys, King Aerys the first, not the Mad King. And King Aerys the first was big into magic and the arcane and researching. He liked. He was into prophecies. He thought that the dragons would come back because of what he read in some prophecies. So, of course, the very existence of prophecies all over Song of Ice and Fire just you know, validates this whole seeing ahead idea for someone as powerful as Bloodraven. If Melisandre and all these other people can see into the future. And we've also talked at length in many different episodes about how these different magical spheres bleed into each other. There's all kinds of resurrection magic. There's all kinds of prophecy magic. So here you go. Prophecy magic, seeing ahead, fits very well. Okay, Bran is looking like he fits this last hero legend slash myth quite well. This was something that we'd thought about a bit, but our Patreon supporter, Lord James Saunders of the Chicken Dance, suggested this to us in email as something to focus on. Definitely agree with him that it's an important thing. So we pulled some quotes. And little did I know what I would find in this quote. There was more to this quote than I remembered, and it's pretty sweet. So is, 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 this is old Nan talking to Bran. Mm, that rhymed. Mm. So as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. 
He set out into the dead lands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched, until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog. And his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it. And the others smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders big as hounds. Bam! The door opened with a bang, and Bran's heart leapt up into his mouth in sudden fear, but it was only Maester Lewin with Hodor looming in the stairway behind him. Hodor, the stable boy announced, as was his custom, smiling hugely at them all. Where to start with that? God, several things. Um, one, okay, it's another example of something we've talked about a bunch of times, how George likes to do this, and the show occasionally does the same thing, where... Someone is giving a really revealing speech, a spoilery, like, ancient mystery-type explanation, and they're interrupted. This is another example of that that I never really noticed before, or I, I probably noticed it, but didn't, didn't necessarily bring it into this category. But it was Hodor interrupting Bran. That's the other thing that's really important. I mean, Lewin was there, too, but Bran, Hodor is the, the one who says something. And, God, that's from Game of Thrones. That's 20 years ago this was set up. 20! And, but, but more importantly, well, maybe more importantly, look at how similar this all is. Bran sets out with his brother, Osha, two wolves, Mira, Jojen, Hodor. They have iron swords they took from Winterfell's crypts, and they go looking for children of the forest and the last green seer. And here's another quote from the books predicting this. All Bran could think of was old man's story of the others and the last hero, hounded through the white woods by dead men and spiders big as hounds. He was afraid for a moment until he remembered how that story ended. The children will help him, he blurted. The children of the forest. Well, they did. That's exactly what's happening. The children are helping Bran. And he has lost so many of his companions. Rickon and Osha, you know, they went, they, they didn't die. They went somewhere else, but he, he lost them. He lost, they even got cold hands to help. And his elk died. And Coldhands was maybe torn apart by the whites as they were trying to make it into the cave. So another companion lost. The elk was kind of like the horse that's in the last hero story. Ooh, it's really strong parallels there. And if you're a believer in Jojen paste, well, then there's that, too, that Jojen would be dead, too. Which means we should be worried about Mira. I guess Mira should be on the worry of the week this week, huh? <laughs> And, of course, these are, he's said that these things are sacrifices. He's, he's lost his friends, and this is a literal sacrifice. Hodor was kind of sacrificed in a sense. And, again, Jojen pays. That's a potential sacrifice as well. And Bloodraven is referred to as the last Greenseer by the children in A Dance with Dragons. And Bran is taking on that role, right? Last Greenseer, last hero. Oof, so it would seem, right? That is a lot to digest and a lot to think about. Oof. Do you, what, what do you think? Do you think that last hero thing is just really solid? How, where were you at on last hero? Maybe, you know, maybe like a year ago, for example. Do you think it was Bran? Did you think it maybe it was John? No, I thought, you know, the last hero and Azora High were the same. We, we talked about that in our, in our episode. Um, so, 
but I guess, you know, we have to draw a distinction between Azor Ahai past Azor Ahai and Azor Ahai reborn. They're not the same, and the, the prince was promised. I, we did notice the there are parallels here, obviously. Um, so, and it's pretty striking. Um, one thing that struck me about all this was in that um, when it's made obvious that Bran knows the end of the story, uh, I just thought that was really neat writing because you get that mm-hmm. interrupted story, and then much later, it's Bran thinking about old man's story, and he kind of blurts out, "The children will help." And now, you know, it's just a sneaky way of like, "Oh wait, we didn't. We kind of got the end of the story there." <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, just, I thought it was really neat writing. Yeah, you wonder if he'll lose them too. If that's part of it, if he's now he's found them, so it's his is his past that point in the last year of story, or if. The worst is yet to come for him, whereas he'll be chased out of the cave in the books and he loses Hodor in the books and Summer in the books. That would be the dog that he loses, the last hero loses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's still Mira and Jojen is still maybe alive in the books. It's not really clear at this point. So those all that loss is still Mm -hmm. set up as a possibility there. And, well, that's. Not necessarily something to look forward to <laughs> in that no, sense. Really. No. Looking forward to brand suffering. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the mysteries and the, the writing and the curiosities being solved. But but the, the tragedy is going to hurt. <laughs> yeah, it always does. And this, this was a pretty, this was a pretty brutal one. Are we all masochists, really? Are we just yeah. being... <laughs> Uh, a few years ago, I got my mom to read these books, and she would she'd read one, and then she'd call me and say, "Does anything ever could could ever happen?" And just, like read the next one, and after every book, it was, "Does anything good ever happen?" And finally, after she read *A Dance with Dragons*, and she was asking me this question, I said, "You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I just keep hoping. <laughs> it must be some kind of masochist." Yeah. But there are good things. That's all. There are, yeah. Yeah. Tragedy interspersed with bigger tragedy. (laughs) Minor tragedy. Minor triumphs. See, the big tragedies just make the little tragedies seem even smaller by comparison. That's that's, (laughs) that's how it is. It's it's more of a tragedy pragmatism. Scale of tragedies. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, that's only a two on the tragedy scale compared to a nine. That was good. <laughs> yeah, so that's 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 start gonna start looking like a good thing, you know. <laughs> okay, well let's go ahead and move to our credits and acknowledgments, and then we will come back with some discussion about the trailer. This one, this trailer discussion has got some extra fun stuff in it because there were some things in the preseason trailers that we can finally understand, that finally make sense, that before we couldn't place them, we didn't we couldn't see what the deal was and how they fit into anything. Now we have some insight, so it's time to share that with you folks if you want to know. If you don't, we'll see you next time. Don't forget show only book or show only not book Q&A tomorrow, Thursday, 8:30 Eastern Standard Time, and of course we'll be back with the at the regular time next week with the next book to show review, and we will be doing a Sort of a, a we're going to do schedule a Q&A of sorts, po- probably a roundtable, going to get some other guests to come on and we'll discuss all the things that have happened to this point as a whole, looking at the season as a whole. That may, that will probably not happen until after episode six, though. So keep an eye out for that. 
It'll be a little extra sort of just past mid-season sort of catch-up and answer a lot of questions that people have. There's there's a lot of reason to look at things as a whole rather than episode to episode. And it's, it's never a bad idea to talk about Game of Thrones a little more, right? So, thanks again, Lady Gwen, for joining me. I know it's a little bit harder this week with, with Balticon coming up. But we had a lot of fun today, and we're not quite done yet. So just remind everybody where to find you all. You got you talked about your Littlefinger episodes, which I highly recommend. Those were the last two you, you all did before the start of the season, becoming more and more relevant as Littlefinger's role grows on the show. So go ahead and tell people where to find you. You can find us at RadioEsteros.com. Uh, and, yeah, check out Littlefinger. Check out The Long Night. Um, all of our other episodes right there. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and like you said, coming up this weekend, you can find us in Baltimore, Maryland. (laughs) Right on. Hope to see some of you there. Let us know if you're going to be there and want to see us. You know what we look like, so it's easier for you, easy for you to find us. We won't necessarily know who you are, so definitely don't be shy. Come up and say, hey, we're friendly people. So, credits, let's say. Let me uh, say some acknowledgments to our lovely Patreon supporters that make this all possible, that allow me to spend so much time talking about Game of Thrones. I am eternally grateful to First Lord Cash Craig, Hand of the King, Lord of Mines, Lord of Makers, the Black Pupil, and a proud new homeowner. Congrats, Lord Cash Craig. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West. Also looking forward to seeing him at Balticon. Also going to be there. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Lord John Reed is of Castle Woodbridge. He's the Lord Borealis, the Light of the North, and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills of Crescent Springs, is Warden of the South. Our small council is made up of Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whisperers. Our Grand Maester is Saria of the Barrows, Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is the Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever is our Master of Laws, and Lord James Tuttle is our esteemed Master of Ships. A far better Master of Ships than Paxton Redwine, that's for sure. Lord and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of Red Mountains of Castle Greatbell is Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges, Beth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks of Castle Crimson Light, Mary Meg is Lady of the Bloody Stepstones, Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Red Fort. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Jeffrey the Unflinching is Lord of Sand Lake. Lord Grey Bay is of the Queen City. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garrett de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Lord Brandon Slate is the North's Hammer and Harbinger of the Old Gods. Lady Brain is Light of Winter's Garden, Beacon of the Northwest. Lord Mark Joseph is the Snow in Winterfell. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye. Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is the leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lady Cachon Vallat is of Swine Harbor. And Lord Barone of Hillcrest is Lord of the Halls and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglades. King's Justice Sir Troy the Steady wields the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Our King's Guard is commanded by Lord Commander Dubbington, the Red Bear. And of course, last but not least, our history of Westeros Night's Watch is commanded by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed up by the fierce First Ranger Fabian Flower, bastard foe, Green Shield. Okay, I said a mouthful, but we're not done. Time to talk about the credits. Credits. The next week on, rather. I just did the credits. 
I'm all lost in time like Bran. Hmm. So. These credits, in some ways, were less revealing than any other credits we've seen for the season. I keep calling them credits. The <laughs> trailer for next season. You're in, you're in a consistent I casual am. loop. <laughs> I, yes, kidding. it's true. I'm stuck in time. <laughs> Part of my brain is in the past. Um, yeah. So, like I said, the, the, okay, well, I'll start with the stuff that didn't tell us much. We, we didn't see any of King's Landing this episode, which I believe that was the first time this season. So they kind of um, delaying our... Our resolution there. We made some predictions. We pointed out some nice conspiracy theories. And there's one hit to the conspiracy theory, which is that Marjorie is seen on the steps. And I thought maybe that was a decoy that they weren't going to actually bring her out. Um, that it was going to be some sort of setup. There's also the the theory that, that the Cersei was setting up the Tyrells to fight the Faith and have them look bad while the, while the Lannisters just sit back and, and, and let them tear each other apart. Problem with that is that Jamie is leading this Tyrell army along with Mace Tyrell as seen in the trailer. So he's sitting outside of the castle steps with her as the High Septon comes out, or with, with Mace rather, as the High Septon comes out with Marjorie. So we didn't learn much from that. Or or did I miss something? you agree with that, Lady Gwen, or is it just yeah, kind of Yeah, no, a... I, I think that seems like it may be pretty straightforward. And can we talk about actor interviews? Yeah, sure. This is, be aware, folks, if you, if you don't want to hear that, Switch this off now or, or turn the volume off for 30 seconds. But yeah. Yeah, Jonathan Price has, you know, these actors always have to say something. So. They can't resist, can they? Jonathan Price has indicated that, you know, the High Sparrow has a, sort of a comeuppance coming his way. Mm. So, Maybe not this next episode, or is that what he said? I'm not sure if it was directly this episode, but it, it was actually, bef it was last week that I read the uh, article, okay. and it, you can probably find mm. it on the internet if, you know, into that I think we all ex I think we all expect that, but it, whether, but the, it's a big difference whether it happens next episode yeah. or, say, at the end of the season or no, something No, I think like the that, context you know? was more that that this, you know, in this sort of upcoming chain of events, it was, you know, so, so I think it. it Maybe what it appears to be. And I, I felt like it kind of put the kibosh on our conspiracy theory. <laughs> mm, okay. Well, there's... So that's kind of an open-ended question right now. The, the trailer, it showed us some scenes, but it didn't show us anything that we can really say, oh, that's going to happen. It's just it, it's just more teasing of, of what we kind of already know. So that'll be fun to see, though, even though we can't necessarily predict what's going to happen. As for... Some of the other plot lines that are important, we, well, I'm sure we're going to see more on the North, the Sansa, rather the Sansa and and John stuff. That's still, uh, you know, heading towards a conclusion. We'll probably see more on Rickon and Ramsey, but that's not in the trailer. Uh, but the big thing from this trailer, oh, actually, before I get to the big thing, a little more of Arya. We're going to see some more of Arya, I, I take it. But here is something that's from previous trailers that matters well, apparently Arya has been in more trailer scenes than we might think which means she might be you know in faceless man disguise in a trailer scene that we've seen so we would have no idea it's her whoa time to rewatch all the preseason trailers maybe and guess wait is that Arya is that Arya my one of my best guesses is that we see a shot of Lord Walder Frey, you know, like toasting his group, and then you see a shot of a bunch of Lannisters and, and Frey's like having a banquet. 
What if Ari's in that shot? There's a ton of people in that shot. She could be like a serving girl or something like that, infiltrating uh, the twins. So, huh. you know, we hardly talked about Blackfish and the Tullys that much. Um, it's interesting. One thing that we could mention about that is that in the books, the Tullys, um, what happens is Jamie works out a deal with Edmure, he go. He kind of goes around the Blackfish because the Blackfish is obstinate, but it's really Edmure who's in charge. So he said he, he makes a deal with Edmure because Edmure is actually Lord of Riverrun at the time, you know, in, in de facto, in, in a sense. He outranks Blackfish, let's put it that way. And part of the deal is that Jamie lets them, pardons the garrison, lets them go. So maybe if something like that happens... Then Sansa can get the River Lord th that help. Because right now it seems like, well, Blackfish takes River Run back. How's he gonna spare any men to go north? It sounds like the, it seems like the Lannisters and the Freys would would, you know, attack him or you know besiege him. And we're probably gonna see the siege of River Run, as somewhat as portrayed in the books. So I don't see him being able to send troops north, which might force Sansa into using the Vale Knights, as we kind of expect she would have to. But if if but it could, but they could both happen. Maybe she still uses the Vale Knights, but there's also an opportunity for some of these northern soldiers to come, or rather, these river Riverland soldiers to come north because Jamie lets them go. But that is pure speculation. There's nothing in the trailers or anything that that indicates that that's going to come to fruition. It's only because we see it in the books. And I had a watching her suggest that possibility to us as well. So that's 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 good to see. So we'll see. We'll see. But of course, the big moment. The big thing in the trailers is big, big moment early in this preseason trailer. We see some guy or, or girl, I don't, not, it's not known, swinging a ball and chain that's on fire in a snowy landscape and smashing something, someone in the face. Now, that someone appears to be undead, as, as in the one getting smashed in the face. Like, it's, an, it's, it's, it's one of the whites. But we had no clue who that other thing was. Of course, the guess is Cold Hands or, or Benjen. And now, well, we have scenes of Mira and Bran clearly still being chased. And then we have this scene. So it seems that they can't possibly escape on their own. Someone's going to save them. Looks like it's going to be Benjen. That's my guess. Uh, and to be very clear, Cold Hands is not Benjen in the books. It's been made. George has absolutely 100% confirmed it. There's... An image going around on the internet, well, it was going around on the internet for a while ago, which was an editor, the editor Anne Grohl, writing in the margin when she was editing A Dance of Dragons, she sees cold hands and says, Benjen? And, you know, question mark, exclamation point, and George responds, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can see him write in the margin, no. So, that's that. But... The show can do what they want. The show, I mean, the show doesn't need to introduce Cold Hands. They can just have Benjen be there and just, who cares about Cold Hands if you have Benjen doing what Cold Hands did, sort of. So, do you think maybe, Lady Gwen, do you think maybe it's going to be Cold Hands, it's going to be kind of an inverse Cold Hands Benjen thing? Instead of him leading them safely to the cave, he's going to lead them safely out of the north. Yeah, I, I think that seems likely. I mean, obviously, Brandon Mira got away, but it's clear they're going to need help. They're not going to, you know, one one girl dragging a boy on a sledge through the snow being chased by an army of undead are not going to get away on their own. They, Especially with that mark on them. Apparently they just know they, where yeah, it is Yeah, it's like a magnet, times. so they'll just always <laughs> yeah. be right there. 
Uh, and I think it's going to be Benjin. They're not going to introduce cold hands. You know, the law of conservation of characters tells us they're going to bring back this character that we all already know about, although some people may have forgotten him because he's been gone a long time. But uh, no, most people will will know and remember Benjin. So that's that's who I think. And is he going to come, you know, lead them back to the wall? Probably. And then we get to the point of we talked about earlier where you know does he lead him through the wall and then bad things happen does somebody figure it out and say oh god no you can't go through the wall bad things will happen it asks that yeah i i so i think we're pretty much of the same mind there roughly but it begs so many questions first of all this character <laughs> whoever he is assuming it's benjamin is riding a horse in this extreme north so is this some sort of special is this a dead horse <laughs> or what the hell how does he have a horse and Benjamin doesn't have his horse. Benjamin's horse rode back to the wall in season two or season one. No, in season one, his horse shows back right. up. Remember that, the riderless horse. So he doesn't even have his horse. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what is going on here? Uh, and where has he been this whole time? I, did you, you guys had a, a theory like that maybe he was captured by the others because they want, you know, his stark blood is somehow meaningful or, you know, that there's that rumor that the first, that Night King was a Stark himself? Yeah, I think, and so I this think is, uh, talked about that. that uh, yeah, you know, there's some there's something special with the Stark blood and the, and the others, I think. So, yeah. yeah. There, there's yeah. some sort of maybe distant connection. That might be a big reveal at the end of the series. Stark's, the first, you know, Night's King was a Stark. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that's, I mean, and it's in the book pretty much. It's not, it's suggested. It's not confirmed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those. But, they say, they say yeah. this, they say that, but it could be something yeah. else. But yeah, yeah, so, but we all, I think most people are like, yeah, it was probably a Stark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially because we're told it was a Stark that put him down, too, you know? And it's like, well, it was his brother or something like that. And the Starks, it's their duty. And this is maybe why the Starks take the Night's Watch so seriously. You know, it's an ancient kind of, uh, you know, thing going on there. So that's just all really, really, really cool. If, if, if Benjen does appear... Next week, it's going to be an explosion of, of comments and, and things again. Not Probably not as big as this week, but it'll be another just torrent of excitement. Yes. Like, yeah, there's Benjamin. And I'll be, I'll be right there with you guys. I'll be cheering. I'll be yelling at the screen like, yeah, Benjamin. Even though I kind of expect it to happen, I'll still be yes. excited to see it actually happen. Oh, yeah. Loving that expectation turning into reality. So... Worry of the week, though. I, mean, I guess Benjamin will save them both, but hopefully it's not just Bran and Mira bites bites the dust because, you know, uh, they've suffered enough, and, and Mira's cool. We like Mira. We hope that she continues to have a role. I'd like to see her do some more damage to the White Walkers. She's already she's, she's one of the few people to kill one now, right? She, John's killed one, Sam's killed one, and Mira's killed one. That's it. Boom. Three people. Yeah. So... Those are the three heads of the dragon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Amira, John, and Sam? <laughs> what? <laughs> what happened to Danny? <laughs> she's over in the Marine taking what is hers. Yeah, so. yeah she's, gonna, she's just going to die. That's she's the other thing whatever. in the credits. Another very unrevealing thing in the trailer is Dario saying, you're a conqueror. And Danny says, I take what is mine. Well, we've heard Danny say, I take what is mine <laughs> several times. That doesn't really tell us anything. That was just like, as usual. Okay. Yeah, that's, <laughs> the, total, that's the most as usual moment possible right there. That's not a slam on Danny. I love Danny. That's no, just, just, just like, just, yeah, well, we've heard that line before. <laughs> definitely. 
but it is it is sort of telling you know but it's it is, even though it isn't necessarily new it is sort of telling like like dario's painting her as someone who's conquering which she doesn't i don't think she likes that mm-hmm. i don't think she i think she takes exception to that term because you know in terms of the seven kingdoms it's like well this i i have a right to the seven kingdoms but marine i don't know about that <laughs> she what right does she have to marine i mean the right of you know freeing the slaves is cool i'm, I'm down with that but as far as her right to rule Marine, well, she's got the right of strength, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Can't argue with, with power. Mm-hmm. The moral arguments are a little more complicated, but let's not bother with those. Um, so, yeah, worry of the week. Mira, do you think, what do you think? you think yes, no, or you think Benjamin will save them both, or maybe... I'd be a little ben, worried ben about hands. Mira a little bit. Um, hopefully she lives to fight another day, so... Just fingers mm. crossed at this point. I guess. <laughs> I mean, let's face it; it looks pretty bad for both of them at the moment. We only, you know, armored in plot. I would say is Bran pretty strongly. So, so we'll <laughs> have to see. I guess. What about the remaining dro- direwolves? They just keep dropping <laughs> like flies. I mean, sad. If we haven't sad. utterly forgotten Nymeria, that she still exists. Um, I don't give her very good odds, or or Ghost, who you know was there, and now we we're just imagining that he's there because I think they're all falling, like you alluded to, they're all falling victim to budget. So yep. we're doing away with sh- direwolves. Maybe that'll maybe we'll get more dragons out of it. Yeah, I mean the show budget has gone up every year, but so has their expense. You know, in season one they had the lowest budget, but they didn't have dragons except for that one little final scene. And they used dogs for the direwolves. They didn't even use CGI wolves. They used actual dogs. So the costs have gone up dramatically. Now they have adult dragons. They have white walkers. They have children of the fort. All these prosthetics. They have huge battles to do. Yeah, it's just, yeah, the budget's gone up. But so has the the overlay. So, yeah, what are you going to do? So, yeah, sorry, direwolves. Doesn't look good. But, yeah, it's weird because Nymeria, in the books, we see how she could come back into the plot because Arya's, you know, skin changing so you can see that <laughs> that developing but she's not skin changing at all in the show maybe it's not too late maybe she'll go back when she goes back to winter to uh winterfell to rather to to westeros she'll start having a connection to nymeria again mm-hmm. but i almost feel like they won't they won't do that and nymeria maybe just won't come back at all maybe. but it's such a loose it's such a nice loose end for them to maybe to get back to i don't know maybe they'll have some sort of reconnection and if she goes to that area you know, there could be this kind of reunion thing. I mean, because yeah. they're not they're not wargs in the show, so it would just be like long lost pet sort of. Yeah. You know. uh, I don't know if they'll bother with it, but yeah. I mean, I guess the good thing there is if they don't bother with it, then Nymeria's safe. She will not right. die. <laughs> she will live in our hearts forever, roaming the Riverlands, yeah. wild and free. We'll always be here. We'll always have Nymeria. <laughs> right. <laughs> Mm. so yeah so uh i i don't really have anyone for the armored and plot mm, i don't know if anyone else at, can, we can add to that list i don't think anything has changed there uh yeah. maybe i'm missing someone but it seems like that's all stayed the same we already took dario kind of off the list temporarily so that's that's good and jorah is off doing his thing he's probably not going to die being sent off on a solo quest is usually good for your your uh your chances i think at least in the short term so yeah, I don't I don't think I have anyone new for this list. 
You know, we didn't we didn't rate the episode. Let's finish with a with a one to ten rating. I'll, I'm gonna give it a I'm gonna give it an eight point five. I'll, I'll go first this time and mm. I just no qualification, just give it an eight point five. Emotional, powerful, and just how much discussion it generated. I, I love that part. What about you? I'm gonna go a little higher than you. Uh, you know, cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time, so I I'm, I'm gonna say eight and eight point seven five. Can we do that? Can we do half? <laughs> Sure. Okay. <laughs> um, I know my when I first watched it, I would have been actually closer to a nine. But after I watched it a second time, I thought, you know, it's not really quite because every single one wasn't all that strong. Yeah. But yeah, it was still very, very powerful and solid and everything. So. I, I almost had to. I mean, I always rewatch it. I've seen it four times now. But I, I almost like at the end of it, I was like, wait, what else happened? This yeah. final scene just dominated so much. Like, wait, what else happened in this episode? That's wait, there prob- was a king's mood, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, that's probably why I, you know, was initially I was like, that was a nine, and then when I thought about it some more, I was like, well, there was, you know, a couple other little things, but it really yeah. just it was really good. I think it was definitely the best, one of the best in a very, very long time. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's either third or fourth rated all time Ever, as far right. as IMDb rankings. Yeah, and of course those those things tend to, you know, they they tend to drop a little bit, especially when they're such a high point, but. It's ahead of Blackwater. It's ahead of the, it's ahead of um, some of the others. It's not ahead of the Red Wedding mm. or the Reigns of Casimir is the actual name, and it's not ahead of Hard Home. Yeah. Those are both nine point nines, which so it probably won't be at. A, it's probably going to stay behind them. It probably won't go up, but it may be able to hold that third spot mm-hmm. until maybe more episodes come along the season to to knock it back down because this season is really just churning out the hits. Yeah. Gotta say. Whether you like them or not, you can't deny that they've been highly rated by the fans and by critics. So there's that. This is the showrunners hate the game, hate the players, but you can't deny the success. I mean, I don't hate the game or the players. I, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm happy. So let us say goodbye for this week. Very good discussions. Very happy that this that we were able to do so much and talk about so many things that are fun. We were able to relate things to the book so much. This season, it has sometimes been a... a challenge for us to relate some of these show plots to the books because they're they're so far off in their own direction but this one we really got back in there and, and really able to delve into some really deep difficult topics that have been questions for up to 20 years literally uh well 19 plus we'll say because we're not quite to the 20 year anniversary of the release of game of thrones but we're really close it's august 1996 will be the 20 year anniversary so Thanks again, Lady Gwen. Thanks again, Yoke Boy, for contributing. Thanks as well to Ashea for contributing some good stuff that made it into this episode. Thanks to all the people that wrote in. Lots of good questions and comments made it into this episode from you all, watchers, listeners, watchers, YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, all that. Everybody's been really, really coming together as a community and, and helping us figure a lot of these things out. It's awesome. I love that aspect of our group as a, as a community that everybody works together to figure things out. It's really fun. So, a lot more to go. We're only halfway through the season. So, we'll be back next week with plenty more as we continue our awesome journey through Season 6. Valar Morgulis. Valar, hopefully Valar, see you at Balticon. And uh, Lady Gwen, see you at Balticon. Yeah, I don't know if y'all caught that earlier. We'll all be meeting in real life for the first time ever. So that's going to be fun. That's something to look forward to in addition to all this awesome Game of Thrones stuff. We're going to get to watch the episode together on Sunday. There's a viewing at Balticon that we'll all be there for. That's going to be fun. And I'll be back to Atlanta just in time to record with Sean 
on Monday. So no worries, no impact to the schedule there. I might be a little tired, but I'm sure I'll be fired up to talk about Game of Thrones as I always am. So Valar Morgulis, Valar Next Timus. See you guys, everybody.